Welcome to another edition of Cloud Unfiltered. I'm your host, Michael Chenitz, and today we have Kelsey Hightower here today. How you doing, Kelsey? How you doing? <laughs> All right. So, you know, you and I have talked a few times about, uh, you know, about this this thing that's going on, this message that was from from somebody at Amazon, an Amazon, uh, you know, video services that said, basically, hey, you know, we're, we're, we, we looked at what we are currently doing and we optimize what we're doing. And we, we've kind of, we've decided that we're going to go back to monolith. And during this conversation, I think a, a several, you know, people misconstrued this in saying that, you know, that almost microservices were a fad and that really, you know, monolith is the way to go. And really, you know, it's the right thing for the right kind of, you know, for you need the right solution for what you're aiming for. And I really think that's the message that that they were trying to get out of there. What's what's your take on that? No, I think it's true. Microservices are a fad. I don't think we started calling <laughs> them. I don't think we started calling anything monoliths until we started talking about microservices. We were just writing software. Sure. And so if you needed a small app, you wrote a small app. If you needed a larger app, then you wrote a larger app. And like all apps, they grow over time. Now, how do you solve this growth of the team? How do you solve this growth of the code base? There's many ways of doing that. And I think the thing that became a fad or became fashion is people trying to give a name to this architecture where you split up your software in separate deployables. And again, we're still not talking about writing modular code, which is probably the core problem that most companies face. How do you keep a clean, well-architected code base that can survive the demands of just random growth, right? We're not really architecting these systems. We're responding to random things. Like this week, we got to put AI in our apps. So where are you going to put it? Are you going to make it a whole AI microservice? Are you going to weave that AI into every little microservice that you have, creating yet another mess that needs to be cleaned up later? And so I think this is the thing that software tends to suffer from. And I think the reason why you saw that response, right? When you go read that blog post, no one was complaining when everyone's like, microservice, 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 right? It's like, oh, look at this awesome pattern. We can spend 75% of our cloud bills serializing JSON back and forth. Look at yes. us, right? Like that's a problem. And so you do need balance. And I think when you see these blog posts that say, listen, we made some decisions years ago. It got us pretty far. But after further analysis, we need to go in a different direction. And for some people you're boomeranging back into a place that they already are. And so if you're already at monoliths and you see a blog post saying Amazon streaming services for this one small little use case, it doesn't matter. They've kind of validated that you can actually succeed with a monolith. And that's not something that we heard a lot before. And so, yes, I think people are over-indexing on this whole idea that they just like abandon ship on microservice and no one should ever do it. Yeah, there's a little bit of that to be fair, but to be honest, people are like finally real engineering with real data and not just saying do microservices like it's some kind of best practice. Yeah, and 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 really what 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 I'm saying is and and I think you're saying the same thing is use the right tool for the right job. I mean, that's what it comes down to. Look at what your needs are and and figure out do i need the phillips head or do i need the flathead you know what, let's, what let's, is pull, let's pull yeah. in why we can't do that yeah right Every, everyone says use the right tool for the job there's a reason why we can't do that we don't know what the job is every week it's changing 
right? True. This team wants to switch this language because of performance reasons. We only see the performance reasons after two years of apparently using the wrong tool. So we used a tool that was accessible to us. We used a tool that we knew. We used a tool that could get the job done at that time. And it may not be the right tool. I think the real question is like, you need to switch tools when the time comes. So I think in our industry and in software, we don't always have the luxury of using the right tool for the job. We do the job using the tools we have, and then the smart engineers will switch the tool when the time comes. And here's the thing. You might be making another mistake that you can't foresee, but you make that change so you can solve the problem in front of you and just realize that more than likely, either your traffic is going to spike and it's going to put so much pressure on your set of decisions you've just made that all of a sudden, just because of that burst in traffic, you are now using the wrong tool for the job because the job isn't a steady state. And I think that's the part what makes all of this decision making hard. And so instead of thinking about this stuff as like a permanent set of decisions, it's more like we're going to use the tool we have, we're going to execute to the best of our ability, and then we're not going to be stubborn. We're going to change when it makes sense. Do you think that, uh, you know, obviously there are companies that can make those changes and there, there are, you know, and I think what happens though, is that, you know, some companies say, well, it's working and it's in place. I don't want to make any changes. So how do you kind of like, you know, look at that and, and correlate those two things? Well, I mean, this one is actually pretty obvious in my opinion. <laughs> I think a lot of times we should stop this whole legacy software. You know, what you're really saying is we have software that actually works. It's been working for a long time. It makes a bunch of money. And there might be an opportunity to do better. Okay, we should probably think about it. But most things in your life, you don't change for the sake of changing it. You don't buy a new refrigerator. It's like, yo, I bought this refrigerator three years ago. It works perfectly. I need a new refrigerator. Like, why do you need a new refrigerator? Something wrong with it? No, it's legacy, though. Look at it. It has fingerprints on it. You can wipe the fingerprints off. <laughs> yeah, but if I buy a new one, it won't have fingerprints on it. But I was like, but the minute you start using it, it's going to also have fingerprints. Like, true, but I can afford to buy a new one. So I think the way we make this decision, um, it's not really that logical. I think when you have software that works, let's, let's just talk about working software for a moment. If you have software that's been working for 20 years, it doesn't mean that you wrote it the first time correctly 20 years ago. It means that over 20 years, you found bugs, you fixed those bugs, and you've gotten the thing stable enough that it can sit there making money, big return on an investment. So when people say, let's rewrite that thing, all I can hear is, we're about to go repeat a bunch of mistakes because we don't know, right? The new language may do things differently than the old language. We may forget that some of the bad code we wrote was literally workarounds in order for it to work at all. Right, and I've, and I've contributed to projects like Golang where you go look deep down in the standard library or in some of the runtime stuff. There is code that if you look at it, you'll say, oh, who would write code like this? And the smart maintainers of the project say, we got to put comments in here to explain to people. You may look at this code and think it's bad. You may look at this code and think it's inefficient. But here is why this code is the way it is. And you should leave it alone unless this about the world changes. Until then, this code is correct in terms of working in the real world, maybe not in your theory. And I think that's the stuff that we forget about when we talk about old software and whether we should rewrite it or not. 
There is a social aspect of that too, though, because some of that, you know, what we call legacy software might've been written by people years ago that really, nobody really knows anymore, you know? So, so, you know, you really get to a point, if you don't know the code anymore, then you have to kind of look at it and say, well, we need to refactor this because of the fact that I don't even know how to, I wouldn't know how to fix it if I, if, you know, if I needed to at this point. Well, I mean, that one's tricky because yes, there are some things that are so outdated due to neglect, you know, maybe that runtime is no longer supported by the vendor. Maybe the libraries you were depending on are, are going away or they have serious problems. Uh, so you do, you're right. You can get forced into having no other choice but to do those things. And look, that's the right time to do those things for sure. But when you own software, I think in many ways, it's kind of like owning a house or a car. When you buy that thing, you know, there's this saying, uh, you, you can afford the car, but you can't afford the upkeep, right? So you got just enough to buy it, but you can't afford the insurance. You can't <laughs> afford the gas. You can't afford the maintenance. So that's the wrong car for you. And I think software, this idea that we can just stop maintaining the software and just rewrite it. It's like, okay, so what is going to happen now? Are you all going to work here forever? Are we going to actually start maintaining the software this time? Like what's different about that? And I think as professionals, we don't always get to rewrite the code base, right? I think you're going to start at a company. It might help to understand the current code base before you try to rewrite it. Because again, like we just said earlier, there are things in that code base that literally are there because that's the only way to hit your compliance target. It's the only way to deal with this weird data format that comes in from a particular customer who refuses to change the way they send you data. And so if you don't read the code, if you don't understand the code, what are you rewriting, right? You can't just ignore the previous two decades of learning and say, we're just going to start from scratch from a position of ignorance. Now the company is really going to have to go through 20 years of pain again to try to figure out all the things that you missed in your clean room rewrite. So I'm going to, I'm going to kind of flip this around a little bit, uh, you know, in the last, you know, I, th I think tech as technologists, we tend to go towards uh, kind of the shiny object. And, you know, I'm definitely somebody that, that definitely plays into this. And, and so we look at the new technology that comes out first, it was Kubernetes, then it was now it's Wasm, you know, and we keep going with this, but I feel like, you know, it's the wrong way to, to look at, you know, yes, you should know about it, but you should also, you should first think about what your application needs are and, and figure out, do you need scaling? Do you need redundancy? Do you need, do you need, do you even need a way to develop that maybe different teams need to develop different parts? You know, so all these things kind of, and there's lots more, I'm just giving a few examples. All these things kind of are decisions that you need to make before you pick the platform. You know, you should write software for software. <laughs> yeah, but I, I think there's a thing around evolution of platforms, right? Like humans have evolved. We have thumbs, you know, we have 10 toes. Why do we have 10 and not eight? So the next kid that's born is going to have all the things that match the current pace of human evolution, right? You could say we could get by without all these things, but we have them now. So whether you utilize them or not, isn't that big of a deal. So let's say it's in 2023 and you go off to deploy a hundred different types of apps. Why would you start from a VM at this point? You would, right? Yeah, you absolutely. would, you, you would start at the current thing that's available. You say, listen, 
you know, Kubernetes does all this stuff. There's a lot of documentation. There's a decent ecosystem. Maybe I don't want to run it myself. So I'll use a managed service to give me that API for leveraging, you know, cloud services in a consistent way. Okay. That's what you would do. Now, let's say you have a bunch of VMs today. Now, how did you get those VMs to work? Right. You probably got a lot of bash scripts, a bunch of Terraform, a lot of Ansible. I mean, you got a bunch of bespoke, hand-rolled, one-off stuff to try to get that to work. And even if you manage to do all that, you probably still don't have a scheduler. You probably still don't have any fault tolerance that's going to move your app around. You probably have no abstractions, right? People confuse automation for abstraction. So you have no abstractions. And so you've invested all of this time in building this bespoke system to manage a bunch of VMs. And now you look up and people have taken all of that experience, because I think the thing we don't really think about is that if there are millions and millions of people in the world doing this stuff, whenever 10,000 of them find interest in a new thing, it sounds like everybody has found interest in a new thing, but that's not quite true. And so those 10,000 go off and we speak at the conferences and we migrate our hand roll custom infrastructure to the new industry standard and we celebrate because that's what this subset was supposed to do. We were at that time. Now, the other millions of people are watching this happen. And they're like, wow, you know, I'm just going to ignore that because who cares? I'm fine with what I have, and that's appropriate. But that fear of missing out is huge. So you watch those 10,000 become 100,000. And remember, 100,000 is still a very small subset of everyone trying to do this. But the noise grows louder. Now, if you're a vendor, if you're Cisco, if you're VMware, if you're Red Hat, if you're Google, Microsoft, you can't ignore the 100,000. So what do you do? You start introducing this stuff in your own products and services to serve that subset of your customer base. So long before you know it, eventually everyone swings around. But here's the thing that's weird about this. I remember when there was hundreds of thousands of people, if not millions, where like Cloud Foundry is the end game, right? All you that. need is Spring Boot, Java, Cloud Foundry, and you're now done, holy grail. But what about machine learning workloads? Nope, don't work. What about batch workloads? Nope, don't work. Uh, what about a language that is not built on that stack? Nope, doesn't work. And so what happens is hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people were all like Cloud Foundry, right? And they went to the Cloud Foundry conference. They got the hoodie, the t-shirt, the whole nine. But there was another group of people who were like, listen, that doesn't work for us. And they got excited about the Kubernetes thing. And so this is why I think it feels like it's always constant because a certain subset of the millions of people find a tool that they need. And you know the way we do things, we like to make noise and celebrate our transition to the new thing. So it does feel like fast fashion. It does feel like we're constantly changing. But if you want the truth, man, if you go to any typical enterprise, there's a lot of people that just don't even care. They're like, I literally do my job. I go home. And when that thing is mature and ready, why would I not use it? Right? Like if I'm driving a car with no seatbelts because that's when my car was invented and they didn't have seatbelts in cars, the next car I'm going to buy, why not just buy a car with the seatbelts? I don't have to retrofit it. So I just think that's where we are. We just got to zoom out for the big picture and just realize that a subset is always going to be moving even when it's not us. Yeah, I'm still waiting for it's funny because I'm still waiting for things to be smarter. You know, I, I get frustrated when I still have to write things like YAML, you know, like 
Like to me, if you're designing a microservice, that microservice should be smart enough to know that it has to inject itself into whatever platform it is. And when it's ready and you bring it online, it should auto inject itself. You shouldn't have to write YAML. YAML to me is like a stopgap, you know? So it's like, I'm still waiting for things to get smarter and easier for people. Let's pull on that thread. <laughs> We've learned through history, you should probably write apps that work independent of their environment. Don't write mainframe apps. Don't write IPv6 apps. Don't write VMware apps. You write applications based on protocols. Data comes in, you process it, and data comes back out. That's a good way to write software. So we do not want the software to be knowing anything about its infrastructure. Who cares if it's Docker, Linux, or Mac? Ideally, hopefully we can cross-compile from ARM and x86. This is good software design. So we don't want the software doing too much because then it's going to get locked into the one thing. And when the time comes, then you got to rewrite all the software. So we don't, we don't want to do that anymore. So we know the software itself should not be trying to make all of these decisions because it's an infinite amount of decisions and it's the wrong place to try to maintain all of that integration and compatibility. So what's the next place where these decisions should get made? And so first step is we have to build platforms either so complex that they can support millions of people's use cases. Maybe there's like hundreds of thousands of permutations of use cases. So that means there's going to be so many permutations of what you can tell that platform to do that's really, really hard. Or you can go the Heroku route and just kind of make the platform super simple, but we know what that means. You can only run a subset of the application. So that's the spectrum. Now, there's one more thing left here. So we have these capable platforms, you know, simple and complex. We have applications that are somewhat portable. We have to tell them one more thing, though. We have to configure it. This is when the human says, here is what I want the platform to do. So the more buttons it has, the more we have to express. And even though people complain about this, this is the only reason why it works. This is the reason why we can have one Kubernetes-like thing in the world that's pretty prominent and don't need 50 different Kubernetes things. Because if there was 50 Kubernetes-like things to choose from, people would go insane. It's too much. Just like we have a universal kind of Unixy thing now, like with Linux, now that we have like TCP IP and different protocols that sit on top, this has been beneficial in terms of having technology move forward. But that means you as a human now, you got to make some decisions. You got to talk to the platform. So what's the best way for a human to talk to the platform? We could use English. Wow, that's a huge vocabulary surface. Imagine if you can just speak plain English to the infrastructure. That's a little insane because I don't know what you're saying, right? We might, not everyone communicates the same. So we want to shrink the vocabulary. We want to shrink the vocabulary to a small set of predicates where you can express something that if another person looked at, they would know exactly what you meant. This is, this is amazing. So we have a small dialect. Great. So we have a small dialect for you to express things like, how much memory do you want? Do you need a disk? What happens if you crash? Do you have help checks? Should I initialize your process before giving it traffic, right? These are, these are very common things that you would expect the human to be able to answer. Now, we could put it all in a JIRA ticket, but then you would laugh, like, that's crazy. And so what we do is we turn that level of detail to 
data. Right now we're in the world of infrastructure as data. The platforms are getting so good, so capable, that now instead of you writing if statements and for loops, you can literally just describe what you want using key value pairs and some data. Now, what format do you want? Because the truth is Kubernetes doesn't even understand YAML at all. It doesn't. Kubernetes stores protocol buffers inside of etcd. You can't write protocol buffers by hand, right? Should we have picked XML on the front end? What about JSON? Should we do TOML? What do you want? Do you want EPTIDIC files where you just kind of <laughs> put everything you want in the right space? How would you like to express your data? And whatever the answer is, I'm going to tell you right now, Kubernetes probably already supports it. Pick your favorite serialization thing. More than likely, you can take that front end like Helm charts or JSON it, you pick one. And more than likely, you can serialize it to protocol buffers or JSON, which is a first-class serialization thing that Kubernetes actually supports. Typically, YAML is kind of processed by kubectl before it gets to the other side, right? And maybe the API server now can process YAML. But I think YAML isn't the problem. The problem is, how do you express what you want from a capable platform? So if it's not YAML, pick something else, but the decision we need to make, are we happy with data as the input for describing what we want? Because this has led to us actually realizing promise theory. I can literally give you a definition and you can do whatever needs to happen to resolve the state of the world until my app runs as described. I don't know if we want to go backwards from there. Yeah, no, I, I agree with that. I do think that there is room, there's definitely room for uh, making it easier. And I, and I think about this a lot in, in the ecosystem. It's one of the talks that I, I commonly have on, on this show is that, you know, we've created this thing that, that is very popular. It does a lot of things. I use it. Everybody uses it. You know, it's, well, I shouldn't say everybody, but a good subset uses it. And the problem is, is if you look at the CNCF and you think about, you know, we've kind of started using this when it came out and we've taken that journey along the way. And we've, we've said, hey, look, you know, okay, well, a new CNI came out, a new CSI, whatever, whatever you needed, you know, came out. And then there were all these applications. And if you look at the landscape, there's like 5,000 different solutions now in the landscape. That's I'm not saying in the CNCF, but in the landscape. Think of somebody that's new that's coming into this. How do they make intelligent decisions of where to start on how to secure it, on how to, how to make it, you know, work in a way that, that scales? You know, it's, it's so... I feel bad for the people that are coming into it now because it seems so daunting. I mean, this is the price of freedom. <laughs> you want freedom? I freedom do. means anyone can try to make a better thing. If you think logging can be improved upon, you are allowed to make a new logging thing. That's what you're allowed to do. Now, we could have said, forget it. There's one logging thing. Let's just use syslog for 50 years, Right. Or it could just be this one that's blessed by this one company that now wants to charge a million dollars to do logging. Or it could just be two people who think they have a better idea of doing logging, like FluidD. And then some more people come along and say, well, FluidD doesn't have the performance that we want. And we tried working with that community and we couldn't. And so now we want to do a different thing. And so that is free software at work, like this, this ability to do that. Now, you're right. There is some value in curation, right? If you're a newcomer to the scene, I mean, look, it's just like going to the hardware store. 
you walk through all the aisles, there's like 700 different screwdrivers. Which one are you going to get? Now, if you understand the fundamentals, you might realize that it just don't matter. Pick a screwdriver and go home and do what you got to do. And this idea of you being on Amazon, looking at the ratings on screwdrivers, like, oh, this was made out of titanium. It will never break. It's like, dude, you're not lifting a car with the screw screwdriver. Just, just get the one for $5, move on. You don't need the other one. And so I think that's the, the challenge we all have. We, we're always trying to find like the perfect thing the first time around versus understanding like, look, maybe you buy the cheap one, it turns screws. And if this thing one day, like you're turning the screw and it doesn't work, you say, oh, I need a different screwdriver. There it is. Maybe you donate the other one to go buy the other one because now it makes sense to have it. So I think of CNCF as a way for discovering things. It's a good place to build communities around to kind of get people community in the box, governance in the box. Um, but without this level of experimentation, do we even get to Docker? Do we even get to Kubernetes? Do we even get to serverless? I don't, I don't know if we even get this rate of improvement at this speed if we didn't have this subculture of people that just want to build and ship. But this is very different. If you're on the other side of this, if you're just like consuming technology... Michael, I agree with you 100%. And this is why the distro makers are so important. The Red Hats of the world, the GKEs of the world, what they do is say, look, we're going to pick the 12 things you need to run this successfully. Here's our selection criteria. Here's when we change it. But if you come to us, we're the DJ. We've, we've selected the right things to be on the playlist, and we got you covered. Now, if you want to go build your own thing, you can do that. And I think curation has always been a big part of human society from music to cooking food. But I do think it needs both. So that way we're always working with the best of breed ingredients available to us. Yeah. And, and I kind of feel, you know, as being in it for a little while that, that it's kind of our jobs to curate it, you know, because it's, I want to help people. I want to, you know, give people that, you know, here's what I've learned over, over time. You know, I don't want you to have to make the same mistakes that, that I made or, or that you made it. Let's, let's figure it out together. But we have to start to do that at a larger scale because of the fact that there's so many people interested in these things these days. And it's just, I, I'm, I, I, as I said, I feel bad for the people getting into it right now. <laughs> well, I mean, the good thing is when the smoke clears, so many things become obvious. What do you do for, um, a decentralized naming service, DNS. Not a lot to think about. How do you communicate with another service over the internet? Probably HTTP-based, including gRPC, which is based on HTTP, right? And I think even things like Postgres, the protocol, the query language, is becoming like the lingua franca of databases, right? New databases are coming out all the time, but usually they support Postgres out of the box, and so even though it feels like things are changing real fast, not really, right? Like when we say structured logs, yes, if I go to the CNCF website, there's a bunch of these logging tools, but most of them support open telemetry. So I think as things change, we're starting to find great consistent layers above it. And so if you're new, you can almost say you're probably going to put your app in a container. You're going to have your pick from everything from Heroku to even Docker running on a VM. And most of that stuff is going to be pretty solid right now. And if you want to send telemetry to Datadog or to the native thing from your cloud provider, there's going to be an open telemetry library to do that. And so I think if you get caught up in like, 
all the things that you need to understand how all of it works, yes, you're going to get lost. But if you're into the fundamentals, man, the fundamentals are getting real good right now. Yeah, I totally agree. It's funny that, you know, you talk about, we talk about these new technologies and new ideas and things like that. But I was just talking the, uh, the other day to one of my friends who we were talking about how, you know, we want, everybody wants this kind of web three and decentralized and all this kind of stuff. I said, I remember when I was a kid running BBSs and there was this thing called FidoNet. And it was like, you know, yeah, we connected and we, we, we exchanged data and then disconnected. I'm like, it's the same kind of concept, except it's many years later, you know? <laughs> so it's like... The ideas aren't always new. There, a lot of them are recycled. Well, and then and then people that don't know the history, you know, if you were, you know, if you were born when everyone had high speed internet, right? There are some people that don't remember dial up. They've never used it. They've only seen it in as movies. It's kind of a thing to laugh at. And so for them, they they may not be aware of any of this historical context about why people choose to group together versus staying totally independent. Why societies are based on trust, right? We talk about like this idea of decentralization and some people you talk to, not all, but some people you talk to in that space, they have this belief that if one entity is so powerful, then they can shut down the system. But then when you dig into the details, it's like, so you're going to trust some software written by 25 people. These 25 people can easily put back doors in this stuff that you are incapable of detecting that can then be activated 20 years from now. But whether you know it or not, you're still trusting those people. And if something were to go wrong, most countries has laws that say, I've been wronged, and then we go to court, and then we have to make decisions around that. And so I think a lot of times people aren't really connecting the dots. Now, I understand the desire, so that's where I have a little bit of empathy. When people say, I want decentralization, I hear something there. I say, oh, okay. It does suck if you've been using something like Twitter forever, and then all of a sudden, they shut off the API access. And you're like, dude, what is that? Like, I was depending on that API. I don't like the way this feels, and I want something else. And then maybe a group of people come together and say, hey, we're going to build a Twitter-like thing, and we promise that we can't shut down the API because we're going to build a protocol where we can't do that. I applaud all of that, but just know that's the entity you're trusting and maybe don't be surprised if no one wants to go and use it. And so being decentralized might have very little value if you're a decentralized group of 10 people versus a billion people using the other platform. Yeah, I mean, uh, trust is a big thing. And really, we rely on that for so many things in our industry. You know, we, we trust open source. We trust security, you know, and security platforms and things like that. We trust... Uh, you know, there's so many things that are just based on that trust. Water. <laughs> like I see these people super paranoid, then they go get a drink of water or they take a shower. I'm like, do you know where that water comes from? <laughs> do you know what's in that water? Right. And they're like, what do you mean? Why would there be something wrong with their water? Oh, so you just trust in the whole system and the facility that cleans this water. Okay. Gotcha. <laughs> It's funny that, uh, you know, it, it comes down to, to that human level, though, you know, and, and, what, and what those beliefs are and what your beliefs are to really trust even down to that water. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, going back to where we started. So we kind of took a, a long roundabout way here, but we, you know, going back, what's the answer to all this? What is, what is you know, there's there's complexity. There is 
uh, you know, software design and software kind of architecture that you have to think about. There's security, there's all these things that you're dealing with on a day-to-day level. And what's the, I mean, I don't think that there's obviously no good answer, but what's, what's, what do you think the future is? And what do you think, I don't know, what do you, what do you think the answer is to, to, to all this kind of technology and, and everything that's out there that, uh, you know, people need to consume or want to consume? I mean, I, I have a <laughs> fundamental belief that at some point we got to slow down. You know, I think every once in a while, the opportunity to slow down presents itself. So when you think about like, uh, let's think about mobile devices. You know, at some point you kind of get Android and iOS and they come with SDKs and those SDKs become real stable. And then millions of people somehow all of a sudden know how to develop for mobile devices and mobile computing. And that was a small fraction of society before then. And those people can deploy their app to 300 million people in one day. Right, there are teams that are hundreds and hundreds of backend platform teams that can't deploy their app to a thousand servers that fast. And so those platforms kind of represent stability. So we get these stable foundations like the freeway system and airports. Those are fairly stable infrastructure components. And they allow a lot of people to get a lot done with very minimal effort. And so I think there's always this kind of we're playing catch up for stability. We, we have a lot of experimentation on the edges, which is nice. People play with different programming languages and protocols. But then when those things get stable, we turn those things into standard libraries. And for a lot of the companies who get it, for every story we talk about complexity, there's, an, there's probably 10 more stories where someone's like, yo, my company makes a million dollars a year with a serverless app that gets 100 requests per week. And we make a ton of cash doing that. And that's beautiful, right? Lots of people can run little small businesses. Think about like your local restaurant. They got a little website. You can hit order online. You type in your stuff and your food is ready when you get there. That's a great example of the progress that we've made that now even a small business can pay probably what, $10, $12 a year and have an online ordering system? Are you kidding me? That's amazing. So I think a lot of times... You know, you and I, we were in the thick of it. We almost got to zoom out sometime and realize just how many people don't actually deal with any of this complexity. And they are doing exactly what you've been advocating for. They're using the best tool for their situation. And it turns out their situation is so common now, $12 a year. I love that. And, you know, it's, it's funny, but I won't even order from a restaurant these days. You're talking about restaurants if it doesn't have like an app. If I have to call, you know, this is the way it's changed society. If I have to call, I get pissed off that I have to call somewhere. So it's funny that you mentioned that, you know, it's, it's one of the things that I, that I think about is like how this technology has changed our environment or the way that we, we kind of operate. Um, so, it's, so it's really, really interesting. It's lots of technology like that. Like think about music production. This stuff is so good. <laughs> yeah, the microphones we get to use, the headphones, yep. uh, people that are making beats on yep. like $15 apps. Some of this stuff makes it on the radio. Yep. And so I would say, man, like, whew, as, as much as it's been com- complex, the trail we're leaving behind is dope. Yep. And to go, you know, the, I come from music production, by the way, that's the, I was a music, you know, music production. I used to make uh, control surfaces for bands and stuff like that, like digital control surfaces. So I could totally relate to what you're talking about there. 
Um, but you know, it, it's, it is at the end of the day, it's exactly as you're saying, man, it's just all this technology, you put it together and you get this thing at the end of the day and it just works. And, and that's that aha moment, you know? So anyhow, I know we're getting towards the end here. Uh, I do want to thank you for coming on. I also want to tell everybody that Kelsey will be joining us at Cisco Live. So Kelsey, thank you for joining us at Cisco Live. We're going to talk about, uh, what are we talking about there? We're talking about the speed versus security. So it's going to be an interesting conversation about this, this whole idea that we need to, you know, developers are designed for speed. Developers are told, you have to get that out the door. You just have to push that stuff out. That's what we want you to do. But then the CISOs might come and, and, and everybody from above and they're saying, no, 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 we need to make the, we may, need to make sure that this is secure. And so we're going to talk about how these two things kind of co you know, co coincide and uh, how they work out. And we'll talk about that at Cisco Live. Yeah, I mean, if, if I'm allowed to give a preview. Yeah, yeah, go ahead. You know, like for me, my big position all of that is, you know, there is a lot of value in having specialists. You know, a lot of people who believe in this, in like DevOps and shared responsibility and this idea of shifting left, meaning I want my developers to understand the infrastructure, the security, the testing, the everything. And I'm like, there's no point in your life where you believe the same. You probably have the trash people pick up your trash on Tuesday. You have someone that deals with your plumbing. I guarantee you, if you get a gas leak, you ain't going to be nowhere to be found in repairing it. And so there's a lot of value in having expertise. Now, I agree there should be some level of understanding or shared responsibility. But this idea that we can just keep pushing stuff left to a group of people who already have a hard job. right? If you've never been a full-time software developer, it's hard because... You're kind of using libraries you don't fully understand. You're using protocols you don't fully understand. You use them because maybe that's what the companies already agreed to use. And you deploy this stuff in production, making real money. And in the back of your head, you're like, I hope it works. I hope gRPC doesn't do something weird when processing this request. I hope no one sends me some malformed data that causes a SQL injection as I make queries to the database, no one does these bad things on purpose. And so when you take a group of people who are already having a hard time keeping up with feature requests and you say, Hey, I also want you to understand security. You're like, you want me to, to understand security or, you know, it's like at home, I know how to lock the door, right? You put locks, I will lock the door. That's me. But if you want me to design the right lock, that's very different. It's a different skill set. It's a different set of expertise. And I think that we just got to be really cautious about what we're shifting left and ask ourselves, uh, is there a better contract that we would give? So look, if you're at Cisco Live, I think we have a wonderful panel of folks where, where we'll get to dive into that particular discussion, but uh, hopefully you join us. Yeah. And so um, Gene Kim will be joining Kelsey Hightower with Stephen Augustus and, and I. And we look forward to see everybody. So thank you for, for watching this or listening to this and we'll see you there.